welcome to the Cult of Domesticity podcast, a podcast about history, true crime, and whatever life brings us. I'm Courtney, and every week I am joined by another fascinating person. Let's see what we're going to talk about this week. Welcome back, devotees. We're back again with Bernadette. Hello. Terrific. Hi. And you got a taste last week of how her episodes are. Well, fabulous, obviously, but (laughs) (laughs) this week we're going to be discussing... World War II historical event that you might have not heard of. I haven't heard of it. Yeah, I didn't hear about it until I was watching The Daily Show and the author of this book came on and I was like, that sounds fascinating. And as some people know, I'm not a fan of researching World War II just because it's so saturated and the answer always seems to be Nazis. It's always Nazis. It's always Nazis. They did it all. Yeah, I had a friend in grad school who was researching um, socialist, like, uh, like these smaller parties in interwar Germany, and he basically would start every presentation. So this isn't about Nazis. <laughs> Every, everyone leaves. <laughs> yeah. Well, the best one was he, it was a hodgepodge, like a grad, just a whole graduate school one. So it was like someone did butterflies, and then it was like... <laughs> and everyone dies like in his story everyone's dead because of nazis but still um and they're fighting each other in the street but it was just like he had to be be like basically like it's not about nazis we're not focusing on them Uh and this story is also not focusing on nazis it's focusing on dutch new guinea which have you ever been to dutch new guinea i have not i've been to i've been to a few places but not there it seems nice (laughs) (laughs) as we'll see so we're gonna start in january 1944 let's rewind everything's in black and white we all have fun hairdos (laughs) i'm assuming i probably still wouldn't but margaret hastings walks into a recruiting station near birmingham and she would get placed on the u.s military compound in dutch new guinea and she was a a WAC, which is the Women Officer Corps. Basically, they help. That's how women could serve besides, you know, being nurses because patriarchy. So I read that she went into the mil- the military because she was 30 years old and was considered a spinster. So she had to do something with her life and went into the military. Yeah. And a lot of the descriptions of her are that she was very beautiful. And I mean, she's a beautiful woman. Uh-huh. So she was going on dates left and right, you know, having a great old time. Yeah. But the, a lot of the wax were unmarried older women. And some of them were widowers or um, just wanted to serve their country, which is really admirable because it didn't sound like they got to do a lot besides being secretary still. Right. Or a nurse. Or a nurse or just random jobs that they didn't think men would want to do. And then we're going to, so from 1944 to the, the day that we're, uh, that we're going to focus on, it's May 13th, 1945. So we're getting close to the end of the war. It's Base G, a sprawling U.S. military installation built around the ta- town of Hollandia because it's Dutch New Guinea. So we have to have something related to Holland. Margaret gets to her desk at eight o'clock where she did, uh, paperwork and she said it proved that war wasn't just hell. It was hell with paperwork. So just so you know, bureaucracy at <laughs> She's described as 30 years old, live, and beautiful. So this comes up a lot in the book. And it's just because everyone, like the natives, the people in the plains, the journalists, all are very centered on that factor of her beauty. Yeah, what if, you, that, what if you don't have that going for you? You've got nothing. Well, we'll see at some point. She <laughs> didn't look so hot. <laughs> yeah. So this is five years 
from uh, to the day that Winston Churchill uttered the phrase to rouse his countrymen to fight ahead. So we will fight them on the beaches. <laughs> we will fight them everywhere. I don't remember the rest of it. And I'm not going to try to do more Churchill than that. And the news in the Pacific is starting to turn around. Like there's bombings in China, um, which funny enough is where my grandfather fought, believe it or not. We did fight in China, guys. Wow. Uh, and we're taking back the Philippines and all that. And they're starting to do the island hop- hopping technique to get to Japan. So on that day, there was more than 130 U.S. fighters and bombers attacking troops, trains, bridges, and other Japanese uh, targets of opportunities in southern and eastern China. And the event we're going to focus on that escapes most people's notice when you're going back is a C-47 transport train or plane carrying two dozen officers, soldiers, and wax that disappears in the mountainous jungles of New Guinea. So we have a we have a mystery on our hands, which the author has kindly solved for us. <laughs> um, so in case you're trying to picture like on a map, because Americans, let's not lie, we're not the best with maps. Yeah, I was just trying to think where New Guinea was. <laughs> so it's located between Australia and the equator. So their nearest big body of things is Australia. And it's a largely uncharted tropical island twice the size of California. And it's 1,500 miles long, nearly 500 miles wide at the center. And it's the world's second largest island. Do you want to know what the first one is? Uh, Iceland? Greenland? Greenland. Okay. Oh, speaking <laughs> of New Guinea, I just saw today, um, I was looking like who listens to Murderific. And New Guinea was like zero point. One percent. I have like three listeners in New Guinea. <laughs> so thanks. You'll be, be very excited for this episode. Yes. So I the uh so the book I'm pulling this from, Lost in Shangri-La. The author describes New Guinea as quote resembles a prehistoric bird taking off from Australia or a comedian's rubber chicken. End quote. So that's the look of the island. Okay. It's it's sort of an inhospitable jumble box of environments too which is good because there's a lost plane who else is going to be um on this plane well margaret brings her regular double date partner a pretty a pretty brunette named laura beasley so you got these two girls and they because you know propriety you can't go on your own even though they're 30 yeah yeah how how dare you go on a date without a chaperone it looks bad yeah (laughs) Yeah, and these are just two of the several hundred WACs assigned to the Far East Service Command. Basically, supply, logistics, and maintenance for an outfit known as BF, with Terry abbreviations. Um, she, Margaret's a secretary. Her commanding officer who organizes this trip is Colonel Peter J. Prosson, an experienced pilot and BS chief of maintenance. So they have a pretty important job if you think about it, even as secretaries, because maintenance and logistics mm-hmm. and supplies. Yeah. You're, you're on an island with planes, and it's a tropical island. So moisture, everything's moist, and you know, so everything's gonna mold. Yeah. And how are you gonna get food? Uh, Crossan seemed like a good boss because he would have pilots bring in supplies, uh, like treats for his staff, like Coca Cola syrup, fresh fruit, and lately he's been offering even better, like perks, sightseeing tours of the coastline. <laughs> <laughs> I can talk, I promise. And Margaret actually wrote back to her father about these tours. Like she's like, it's so amazing my boss is letting like because it's think of any trop like pacific tropical island you've seen it's gorgeous yeah or any boss even offering something like that would be amazing i know like even being like hey we're gonna go do like i don't know i'm in cincinnati we're gonna go do a riverboat tour so we're gonna go up and down the ohio river yeah probably not now it's flooding but still (laughs) 
So that day, Crossan arranged the most rare and sought-after trip for his staff. He's trying to boost morale. A trip to Shangri-La, which does not sound like it belongs there. Right. It's New Guinea. So what is Shangri-La? A year earlier, in May 1944, Colonel Ray T. Ellsmore heard his co-pilot's voice crackle through the intercom of their C-60 transport plane. They're flying around the center part of New Guinea, and his pilot, uh, co-pilot Major Myron Grimes basically says he has seen this valley, and it's a hidden valley. It's really hard to get to because of the way the mountains are, and it's really dangerous because anyone who has heard a lot of flight, like plane accidents or anything like that, people flying in the mountains. Mountains create updrafts and downdrafts, and so sometimes it could be fine, and all of a sudden there's a gust of wind going straight up, and your plane's shit out of luck. Well, the story of this valley that has a native population that hasn't been seen by humans before, so naturally everyone's like, let's go look. Yeah, I would want to go. I'd go now. Uh, become very popular. So over, like, people are clamoring to get these, like, flights, and it's hard to get people who are certified to fly there. They have stories of native spider arrows and throwing spears at planes, and some people are like, we want to go touch down there because, you know, we're inheritors of Europeans, so we want to put our flag in it. Yeah, we want to take your shit. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, pretty much. Um, Ellsworth, who keeps going, is, like, writing descriptions. But, of course, it's the 40s, so we have some racial and cultural condescension of the natives yeah. just in description. But just assume that throughout. Uh, they also bring two reporters, George Late and Harry Patterson, to on the tour to, like, kind of, you know, it's the war. You need some feel-good stories, not just bring out your dead. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Not just Nazis and death. Yeah, just not Nazis and death. So... The the reporters were like, okay, we need a better name. We need to brand this. <laughs> and there was a movie that had come out called Shangri-La. So they're like, we're we're taking that and we're christening this valley Shangri-La. And it took hold. They formed a Shangri-La Society for pilots and passengers who flew over it. Each, <laughs> I just love how 40s this is. Each society member would receive uh, a comically ornate certificate on a parchment paper that looked like a hard-earned diploma, complete with a blue and yellow ribbon, affixed with a gold foil seal. I feel like they were very easily amused back then. I mean, if you're stuck in the jungle for so long, <laughs> wouldn't you be? Yeah. So the certificates were also personalized with the society name member's name and the date of their flight. And they also included the precise longitude and longitude so they could find their way back, um, you know, easier. But our two uh, pilots on the day of May 13th were first-time flyers to Shangri-La. This can't go wrong. No. Uh, no. Come on. <laughs> it's uh, Crossan and his co-pilot, Nicholson. And they knew all about the treacherous mountain pass from what they had heard or read from other pilots. And Crossan kind of gets up as they're flying, leaving the most difficult part to the co-pilot who hadn't been flying more than a couple of years. So that part, uh, he also has disregarded um, Elsmore's warning about flying into Shangri-La. Elson has done now hundreds of flight into, flights into those valleys that, over the year. And he remarked, Elson remarked on the dangers that would confront a pilot unfamiliar with this can canyon. Because like I said, airflow. There's just met, like, it's, it's misty because it's tropical and all that. If you've watched, um, Below Deck, their current, <laughs> their most current season, they're in Tahiti and you just look and all of a sudden out of nowhere, storms will come up and that's just 
you're in a tropical area. It's just what happens. So they were they were warned a little bit. Yeah, it was well known that it's a difficult flight in. Yeah. So they're nearly an hour into the flight, and they're playing the Gremlin Special, which I just love the name of that. Yeah. Sneaked over a ridge, dropped several hundred feet, entered a uh, narrow valley, which is an offshoot of the main valley entrance. Like so it's a, they're right, they're right there almost. Um, the plane flew about uh, at about sixty five hundred feet above sea level, and they're only about thirteen hundred feet above the valley floor, which is reasonable, I think, for like if you want to see stuff on the ground and all of that. But if you don't know where you're going, uh-huh. uh, on top of it. Jungle-covered mountains flanked the Gremlin Special on both sides. So, just setting the scene. There's mountains everywhere, covered with jungle. And Nicholson uh, eases the control wheel toward, toward lowering the tail. So, the tail rose, and then, like, so they're going down a little bit more. They're going to go get closer to sea. He's a thousand feet above the valley floor and continues dropping. This seems problematic. Like, as you're reading <laughs> it, you're like, until they were flying at less than 400 feet above the ground. Oh, no. Yeah, not good. So John McCollum was one of the officers on the flight, and he's actually sitting next to Margaret. And he kind of starts, he looks towards the front, the cockpit, and he sees uh, dead clouds ahead, which isn't good if you're in a valley. McCollum estimates this mountain to be about 12,000, 13,000 feet. And I love this description, quote, in the parlance of pilots, the cloud had a rock in it, end quote. What? Oh, no! Oh, oh, no. Yeah. So, McCollum realizes what's happened, and he says, quote, give her the gun and let's get out of here, end quote. He shouted at the cockpit. And, you know, some of the passengers think it's a joke, but Nicholson already knew it was no joke, and he recognized the, uh, the risk, because McCollum's also a pilot, and he knew the first rule of uh, mountain flying, which was always to be in a position to turn. But the problem was, it's a valley, so it's too narrow for them to turn, so they can't do anything. There's only one option, up the mountain. And Nicholson pulls sharply back, just trying to get as much elevation as he can. Colonel Prosson is standing in the radio compartment, and Sergeant Helen Kent is enjoying the view from the pilot seat. So She's just like, do-do-do. Yeah, she wanted a better view. Uh-huh. So Prosson gave her his seat. But the problem is, he's the most experienced pilot on that plane. And he's not at the controls. Wow. And um, they're climbing, they're climbing. He's struggling to gain altitude. And McCollum's, like, trying to see, like, spinning around, turning, looking out his window to try to see, like, what's going on. The branches begin to get closer to the bottom of the plane. Uh, and the pilot now can't really see because there are clouds. And he has no aid because he's basically only relying on his instrument. So he's uh, plane blind. And basically going off of instinct. That's terrifying. Sorry, my sister was calling. So so they're just going up now and, like, praying and not even knowing what's going to happen, pretty much. Well, half of them don't realize what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, like, half of them are praying. Half of them don't realize what's happening. Mm. So it's not great. <laughs> and the count what happens next comes from John McCollum. And he said it appears that Nicholson, who had only learned to fly three years earlier, grew momentarily disoriented or misjudged the situation when he flew into the low valley. The threat to the gremlin special might have been exaggerated by conditions beyond his control, but as he fought to gain altitude, powerful gusts of wind swept down, because again, mountain, the air has to go up and then come back down, so it makes um, weird drafts, and creating turbulence. So another reason why these uh, air changes happen is because you have 
in the bottom of the valley, it is very warm, and up at the top of the mountains, it's chilly, so you have drastic drops in temperature, also making basically a wind shitstorm, I'm going to say, because you have to be on your toes and ready for any kind of condition. Um, On top of it, this also forms cumulus clouds around the peaks in mid-afternoon, which is kind of when they're flying. They get hit by a downdraft at that moment and um, really hurt Nicholson's attempts to go up, like gain altitude. Nicholson can't make the plane bend to his wishes. It only has so much power, because remember, 1940s planes. And the Gremlin special begins to shear off the tops of tropical uh, evergreens, and basically the bottom of the plane starts getting beat up. The crazy thing is, even if Frosten had realized what would happen, there is no time to race back to his seat and take over like control. Because one, there's someone else there, and two, it's already too late. It seems like he should not have given up his seat, number one. Number two, it seems like they weren't, like, they just didn't, maybe they didn't think it was a big deal. That's what it seems like. And they just should have been more concerned about the flight. Yeah, it seems like it was, it was just for fun. It's just for fun. We're going to go. It's going to be fine. And it's not fine. Um, So at that point, Margaret is still calm. She's like, you know. She thinks her boss is at the wheel. So she's like, oh, he's doing some fancy stuff for us, like trying to keep us, like, boost that morale. Um, as soon as he, uh, buzzed, uh, I guess buzzing the treetop is, uh, calling flying flat on deck, but she's next to John McCollum and he grabs her arm and goes, this is going to be darn close, but I think we can get over it. Oh. They do not get over it. Uh. At three o'clock in the afternoon, Sunday, May 13th, 1945, uh, George Nicholson's desperate attempt to gain altitude ended. The distance between the C4 and the train became zero. <laughs> they crash into the mountain, into the trees. The cabin crumples towards the cockpit, so the cockpit just starts crushing inward. <clears throat> the The crazy thing is the, the walls of the fuselage collapse and it suck inward. Both wings are ripped away. The tail sec- section is snapped off like balls of balsa wood toy. And then there's flame because fuel sparking. It's never and, good. It's never good when a plane crashes, but... Had a fire yeah. on top of that. Not so great. Mm-hmm. In the middle of a jungle. Yeah. So all the survivors admitted that the air smelled of burning metal, burning leather, burning rubber, burning fires, burning oil, burning clothes, burning hair, and burning flesh. Oh. <laughs> yeah. The only reason they everyone did not die is because Nicholson had managed to point the nose of the plane skywards in an attempt to clear the ridge. So it hit the... Um, mountain at an angle instead of head on because if they would have hit head on the whole thing would have exploded yeah and instead it's like they might have hit something but it kind of skeetered a little bit up the mountain it didn't explode on impact anyone um not immediately killed or mortally wounded would stand a chance of surviving john mccollum flew across the center aisle from the left side of the plane to the right he lurched forward through the momentum doing somersaults as he fell he was momentarily blacked out he came to, found himself on his hands and knees, halfway up the cabin towards the cockpit, surrounded by flames, and immediately he's like, exit route, got this. Because he has his training. He saw a flash of white light where the pl- tail had been, and the roof of the cabin had basically looked like it had been uh, stepped on, so anyone who was in the front of the plane is already gone. Yeah. Um, he crawls towards the light, and he actually survives without a scratch. That's crazy. I, I, I know that the first time you read it, you're just like, I'm sorry, what happened to him? And he's fine. He's fine. Completely fine. Okay. So on top of it, his twin brother and 20 other pe- uh, 22 other people are, are on board, trapped inside, and he believes ev- he's the only survivor because he's the only one who's walked out. And he's lived with his 22 brother. <laughs> he's lived with his twin brother 
for his whole life and they're in like their mid twenties and his brother has just been married and had a baby. So like, it's really hard on him because he's like, oh crap, what do I do? I'm sure he's in shock. Mm -hmm. So let's go to Margaret. She bounces around the cabin like a rubber ball and she immediately begins to pray. But because it feels like surrender, she's like, hell no, I'm not doing it. (laughs) She's pissed. Which I'm like, I I just love that response. She's like, like, I should pray. No, I'm going to survive this. My vacation is ruined. I am getting out of this. Well, she had a she had a swimming date plan for when she got back. So she's also pissed about that now. <laughs> Priorities. Exactly. <laughs> so she took the, the, the crash personally because her dream trip to Shangri-La had been spoiled by the plane crash. <laughs> she hadn't seen any natives and she's very upset. She found herself lying on top of a motionless man, which, honey, propriety. <laughs> uh, unfortunately for her, well, fortunately and unfortunately, he had cushioned her fall, but before he had died, he bear hugged her and then died. Yeah. So what you, That's disgusting. It's disgusting, but you also have him starting to get into rigor mortis. Oh, oh no. So she has to like quickly... Um, yeah, quickly get out of it because the fire's coming towards her and she feels it licking up her face, her feet, and her legs. And then she smells her hair burning. Oh no, yeah. So she's like, she's like, I'll just die here. And then she's like, you know what? How about not? And she got angry. <laughs> she got angry again. Yeah. yeah she <laughs> never underestimate a woman's anger to get out of a situation then. Yeah. She manages to pry loose the man's hand and begins to crawl. She had, sounds like someone's calling me again. Uh, she has no idea where she's heading, and luckily for her, she does not crawl towards the cockpit, which is crushed and on fire. She crawls towards the tail. She doesn't hear anyone else moving or moaning in the cabin, so she's like, okay. <laughs> and then she gets out, runs into McCollum. He's trying to talk to her, and then they hear another whack scream from inside the plane, quote, get me out of here! So, end quote. The gremlin special is completely aflame. They... He, he, McCollum's like, give me your hand. He pulls out Laura Beasley, her double date partner. And at least she's still got her wing woman. Yeah. She's on fire. Oh. And, you know, they get her out. He goes back. McCollum, he's amazing in this whole story. He goes back in and he finds private Eleanor Hannah, who'd been seated next to Laura, who's directly across from the two, uh, like Margaret and McCollum. And he gets her out too. She, Eleanor's been burned far worse. Her hair is still crackling with embers when she's carried out. He was going to go in for another rescue mission, but the fire is um, getting hotter and more explosive. There's like pop, like square, like small explosive explosions begin to happen because as it hits certain areas, um, he's like, okay, this is it. We got three wax and me, which sounds like a really bad TV <laughs> show or movie. Yeah. <laughs> And he's like a theme song. Uh, So, but we get one more because all of a sudden a man walks woozily towards them from the right side of the plane, from the other side of the plane. And he's like, is it my brother? It is not his brother. No. It's uh, Sergeant Kenneth Decker, who McCollum actually supervised in the drafting room at Fias. Decker is on his feet, badly dazed and hurt. He has a bloody gash several inches long along the right side of his forehead. And you can see a skull. So, yay. He's not going to make it. The people you think would make it, for the most part, some of them are shocking. Because you're like, you survived a jungle with this injury. (laughs) Huh. Decker can't answer how he survived because he never would regain the memory of what happened between takeoff and 
appearing in the jungle. He never gets it back. Yeah, that's probably a good thing. Yeah. Later, McCollum would find a hole in the side of the fuselage, which uh, he assumed Decker escaped through. Or he had been catapulted through the cockpit and the windshield. Either is not great. (laughs) On top of it, Decker repeatedly mutters, quote, hell of a way to spend your birthday, end quote. Because it was his 32nd birthday to that day. Very memorable birthday. You can't remember half of it, but it's fine. (laughs) So let's take stock. We have a sergeant, McCollum, who's the least injured among the five survivors. He's a first lieutenant, so he outranked everyone. And he just starts taking charge, which is good because I don't think, well, first of all, Decker couldn't probably think through it. And everyone else is injured. And he begins to order, he goes, Hastings, can't you do something for these girls? Basically, because Margaret's the least injured, so she begins to, like, check them out, and immediately she goes to Eleanor. This bubbly, young, whack private from rural Pennsylvania didn't seem to be in any pain. Remember, I said she was severely burned, which means it's already too late. Yeah. Her nerve endings are probably burnt off. Yeah. Fire had seared off all her clothes. She's covered with burns on everything except for her face, which is kind of creepy. It's super creepy. He goes over uh, to Good, and McCollum actually told Good to, hey, like, hey, if you're free in the afternoon, we're going on a fun trip to Shangri-La. So he's the reason why Good's there. Yeah. Feels a little bad. (laughs) Um, They get closer to Good. Flames explode from the fuel tanks on the torn-off wings, which had remained close to the fuselage. As soon as they subside, they rush to Good, which is too late. He's already dead. And they couldn't really figure out what killed him the explosion of previous injuries, but when they reach his body, they learn why he didn't move when uh, McCollum first called. His foot was tangled in the roots of a tree, so he couldn't get out. Yeah, this is like a really bad movie. Yeah. Uh. You like you, you think it's like really, like you're like, this is a movie, but it's real life. <laughs> yeah. We'll live this. So no one else would emerge from the C-47 Gremlin special that afternoon or ever. Uh, the bodies that remain inside the plane would be cremated and... They actually managed to, when they go back, they recover gold wedding rings with a white inlay that somehow managed to remain intact because it didn't burn hot enough. Um, Inscribed were two sets of initials, CAC and REM, and the date 5-543. Two years before the crash, John McCollum stood next on the altar next to his sister-in-law, Cecilia Adele Connolly, as she slipped a ring onto the finger of Robert Emmert McCollum. So it's his brother's wedding ring. So they managed to recover those. And his wife never mar- remarried either. Wow. Yeah, that's too- yeah, that's devastating. Yeah. So as they're over Captain Good's body, the exploding fuel tanks begins to spread the fire closer to the three surviving women, threatening to trap them in a ring of flames, which is, again, not good. Um, Margaret had saw a small rock ledge on the edge of a cliff some 20 yards down the jungle, covered um, mountain from the wreckage. So she begins to go towards that. And they basically begin to realize um, that this jungle is a botanist dream, but if you're a crash survivor, it's horrifying because it's thick, lush jungle. Right. So they prob- they knew they had to get out of there, but like leaving that situation was hard. Yeah, it's going to be a fight. So she manages to sit down because she's like, she's really, really hurting. Her feet are hurting and she takes, she begins to take stock. She pulls off her half socks because half of them had burned off. And her right foot was cut badly and bleeding. And she's taking off her left sock. There's not a mark on it, but the bottoms of her left foot were burned because the heat had passed through the fabric to sear the skin. 
Both her legs had deep burns. Her right hand was cut and bloody. The left side of her face was blistered from heat, so she pulls off her khaki shirt, grabbed uh, the co- her cotton bra, puts her shirt back on, um, and she tears her bra in half and tries to bandage her feet. Doesn't really do good. Could you imagine using a bra no. bandage? No, I can't even imagine being braless. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but, I mean, if you don't have that much fabric, you're like, okay, that's what I'm doing. She then removes her underwear, and um, which I love this fact. They were mud brown rayon, so that way, because white underwear is banned from the military, because if you're hiding in white underwear on a jungle clothesline, it kind of lets the enemy know where you are. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. So she intends to use her underwear to make bandages for herself and others. So she's immediately just like, okay, what do I have? that I can use <laughs> for this. So she sees McCollum uh, leading the way over the rough path she had followed minutes before, killing, carrying Eleanor on his back. Uh, halfway down, McCollum loses his, foot, his footing, slips, landed awkwardly on a small tree. He picks himself up and pulls Eleanor back on. This is his only injury the entire time. He uh, broke his rib and oh. he told no one about it the entire time. Yeah, what's he going to say? Like It's like, it's kind of those things when you see people like who are injured and someone's like, Oh, I cut my hand. And then someone's having a heart attack. Yeah. And, and everyone's like, like, fuck off. <laughs> They're 9,000 miles above sea level and the temperature begins to fall. It begins to rain. And even though they have some small trees to give them covered, uh, some cover, they're soaked to the bone and you know, half your body's burned. It's raining. You're now cold. Yeah. It's, it's pretty, it's not going to get worse than this. I mean, it might, but I mean, that's, that's pretty bad. (laughs) Um, so the men rest for a bit and then they leave the three women on the ledge to climb back up towards the wreckage because McCollum, of course, is an Eagle Scout and he wants to find supplies, some food, clothing, weapons. All he has is a lighter and a small pocket knife and he goes, that's not helpful if we run into like hostile people. (laughs) Got this tiny knife. It's only good for close stabbing. Yeah, right. <laughs> and he's like, okay, I remember someone on the crew had a forty-five caliber pistol. Yeah, can't find that because much of the cockpit, cockpit in the cabin are on fire. But um, how is there only one one gun on a military plane? <laughs> just just a no thought. <laughs> I have no idea. That's a great question, though. <laughs> so this fire um, would continue to burn into the middle of the next day. And it would, like, that's really their best beacon right now is this fire. Because the plane is camo. Oh. Oh. In the jungle? Cool. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, if you're hiding from the Japanese. Yeah. Yeah, camo plane's great. If your plane crashes in the jungle, you're a little fucked. This was a really poor plan. I don't think they planned on the plane crashing. <laughs> Of course they didn't, but. (laughs) So, um, on top of it, when McCollum gets back up to the scene, he realizes how lucky they are that anyone survived because on one side of the wreckage is a 15 foot boulder. And then like the other side is just like more jungle. And he's like, okay, so we hit it like a touch over to the one side. Everyone's dead. They, uh, he climbs into the tail's opening, pulls himself inside. He finds a duffel bag with bright yellow self-inflating wrap. That'll be good. You can be like, hey, we're here. <laughs> um, two heavy tarpatine, two heavy tarps designed to cover um, the raft and a few basic supplies. He tosses uh, the bag outside and begins to climb out. He inflates the raft, which I never got why he inflated the raft, but I think there's supplies inside of it. 
Uh, and there's, so he's going to take inventory. They have a couple of small tins of water, a first aid kit with bandages, a few vials of morphine, because, you know, just we're giving it out. That's the only good thing but they more, have. Vitamins, boric acid to disinfect wounds, which, I mean, on burns, no. it's got to hurt. It's got to burn. Um, and sulfiazole tablet to fight infection. Appreciate my medical pronunciation. And the only <laughs> food is charms. Uh, like lucky, like lucky charms. Yeah, sadder lucky charms. Oh, they're fruit flavored hard candies made from sugar and corn syrup. So like lifesavers. Yeah, like sad lifesavers. <laughs> I don't even think they're a ring. I think they're just like probably a circle. <laughs> they're probably like beige. Oh, they probably are beige. <laughs> I think later they say they're colored so you can sort by fruit flavor. Because <laughs> they were like rotating fruit flavors. Spice of life. Uh, they all, he also found a signaling, signaling mirror and even better, a, a, a signal pistol. So like a flare pistol. But he couldn't find any flares. Okay, so useless. Yeah. So again, this is why I don't know why he inflated the raft. They're hauling the, they hauled the raft, raft and supplies over the ledge. Along the way, the raft snagged on something and got deflated. <laughs> What was he thinking? I, I'm guessing there had to have been supplies inside the raft yeah. that he wanted to see. <laughs> and he was like, that is so dumb. What are you going to do? I guess you could, it's still a tarp. Technically, it's still a tarp, so you can put it over you. Yeah. And it's yellow, so people can see you. Oh, okay. Uh, they reached the wax. They cleaned and bandaged the wounds, gave him shots of water to uh, take the anti-infection tablets, which is good that they have those. He flattened, he put the flattened raft underneath uh, Laura and Eleanor and covered them with a tarp, which is good. So then they're not wet. Well, they're still wet, but the, they're, there's something between them and the ground and they're covered. And uh, Eleanor smiled and she keeps saying, let's sing. So McCollum gave... Oh my God. No. Well, I think... <laughs> I think she's just so out of it. Yeah. There, she's like, it's time for a sing-along, guys. Let's sing as if all our friends are dead. <laughs> oh. like, if you think about it, that's really, like, everyone that like everyone that was on the plane with them is dead. Mm. And she's like, let's sing. But I think she's just, I don't know, she's not in pain, clearly, because she's like, like you said, her nerve endings are probably burned off. But McCollum gives her a shot of morphine, hoping it helps her sleep. It does. The ledge that they were on was too small for all five of them, so Margaret and the two men move a few yards away on a different ledge. They wrap themselves up in the second uh, tarp, and because McCollum has a pecked cigarette, they all share a cigarette. And I think if any time you're like, someone deserves to smoke, it's after you survive a plane crash. Yeah, even if I didn't smoke, I would start smoking. Exactly. Uh, the next morning, McCollum rose first and went to go check on Eleanor and Laura, and Eleanor is dead. Oh, the one who was singing? The one who wanted to sing, but her, remember, her whole body, except for her face, is burned. Okay. So, I mean, even if she had survived, those burns are going to tighten up, and you're not going to be able to move. Ugh. Oh. So, he, they have no way to bury her, and no energy to even try. So, he laid her remains at the base of a nearby tree. They wrapped her up in a tarp that they can't do anything for her, uh, like, more than they can do for themselves. So, they each get um, a little water. Few sips with a vitamin pill and a few charms to tie them over, and they're shaking because they're hungry. Yeah. And now the adrenaline's gone. The guys return to the plane. They found two cots, another life wrap, two more yellow tarps, a small one, two compasses, a heavy cotton flying suit, more first aid kits, a signaling mirror, seven canteens of water, which is good. Oh, that's good. But each one only contains a cup of liquid. <laughs> so not a lot. And Decker digs around the toolkit and brings out. 
a roll of black electrical tape and a pair of pliers, which I'm like, okay, you can use the tape for a lot of things. And electrical tape is strong as hell. Yeah. Laura continues crying and shaking, but she doesn't complain of being in pain. So McCollum gives her one of the flight suits for warmth and told her to lie on one of the cots. She is, every time she's thirsty and wants water, she would drink a little bit and then spit it up. And even though she looks fine and her burns are superficial, McCollum fears that she has internal injuries, which is really when you have something like that. That's the biggest fear. Yeah, because you can't see what's going on. Yeah, it's like internal bleeding and all that. At this time, Margaret's looking at her legs and discovering rings of burned skin, each three to six inches wide around each calf. They didn't look painful, um, like as painful as they looked. They looked really bad, apparently. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they're only going to look worse. Uh, and then her feet are hurting so bad. She asked Laura if she can borrow her shoes while she rests because her shoes survived. Um, and Laura's like, yeah, there's still um, smoke coming out of the plane. So they're like, okay, as long as someone finds us before this goes out, we're okay. Yeah. But the other problem is they crashed into a mountain miles away from the path that led into Shangri-La. And their flight plan said Shangri-La. See where like, people looking for them might have problems. Right. Um on top of that, Nicholson didn't have time to place a mayday call. He was more trying to survive, and no radio communication had been since they had taken off. Well, that's kind of a warning sign. <laughs> so, less than 24 hours after the crash, they did hear the sound of the plane engine. McCollum grabs the singling mirror and furiously tries to snatch sunlight skyward. It doesn't work, and McCollum tries to reassure his compa- companions. He's like, I don't know how, but they'll get us out. That night, uh, Margaret ends up sleeping next to Laura. And she's like, Laura's not, um, she's fidgeting the whole time on this cot. So it's not comfortable. Around midnight, she woke up because it was suddenly very still. Laura had stopped fidgeting. Forever. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, she has no pulse. So she calls McCollum and he's like, he's like, oh my God, this woman is overreacting. Ugh. This damn woman. They're always overreacting. Yeah. There's some cases where they're just like, they're like, I'm so impressed for a woman for her. And you're like, what? legitimately, she just wants to live. <laughs> so he goes back and he's like, you know, she was hurt. She's not keeping down water, but she should be dead. Um, he goes over. He checks her hands. They're cold. He checks her pulse. No pulse. He lifts up her body, Laura's body from the cot. He wrapped her in one of the remaining tarts and placed it along. Eleanor Hannah's body at the foot of the tree. So the ones that they do get out, they do kind of at least put together and do some semblance of like, we're sorry, but they don't have anything to do. Yeah. They don't have a shovel. It's the jungle. They're all injured now. Yeah. They have other things to worry about besides burying bodies. Yeah. So listen to how lucky Margaret and McCullum are. Margaret had changed seats for a better view, and McCollum had boarded too late to sit next to his brother. They ended up in the last two seats on the left side of the plane. They lived. Laura and Eleanor, who had sat across from them, had died. Yeah. Like, legitimately, they were just on the right side of the plane. Yeah. Usually in plane crashes, when you hear that a couple people lived, it's it's like total luck. Like, it depends where you're sitting or... Yeah. yeah. So let's go over the three survivors of the Gremlin special. We have John McCollum, a stoic 26-year-old first lieutenant from the Midwest who had just lost his brother. Kenneth Decker, a a tech sergeant from the Northwest who had an awful head wound who just celebrated his 34th birthday. Worst birthday ever. Yeah. I'm going to go with. <laughs> Margaret Hastings, an adventure-seeking 30-year-old whack corporal from the Northeast who had missed her date date for an ocean swim on the New Guinea coast. She missed her swim. <laughs> she missed her swimming date. She, she was 
she actually had a lot of dates and they comment on that. She's very <laughs> like, cause she was fun and she's popular and she's feisty. And I was like, I like her. I like you. I like her life. Yeah. And a lot of the information that we get from this, uh, is that Margaret keeps a journal through the whole thing. So McCollum returns to Margaret, who's still on the cot and he lit a cigarette and hands it to her because they're sharing it because one of their friends just died again. And Margaret wrote her diary, quote, no night will ever be as long as this one, end quote. Yeah, I saw that her diary was like 20,000 words. So oh, yeah. she spent a lot of time writing. I mean, it, there's a certain point where she can't really walk. And and so what else do you do? Mm. And she, I mean, she did a good job at recording everything that happened. So plane crash survivors are normally told to remain with the wreckage to increase likelihood of being found. This is New Guinea. This is not what's going to happen because they're in a jungle. So uh, morning of May 15th, so we're on day two, McCollum determines that he's changed his mind. They can't wait for Margaret and Decker to feel stronger to trek uh, to the clearing he spotted from a tree. So he got up and done some surveying to figure out where, they, where to go. So he assembles most of their supplies in one of the remaining yellow tarps. He packs a smaller one for Decker and gave Margaret a pail that he had found in the plane's tail. In there were her day's rations, two tins of water, a yellow, few yellow cellophane wrapped charms. Yeah, they're wrapped in saran wrap, too, on top of that. <laughs> saran wrap. Saran wrapped candy, guys. Mm. And they had to, they go, how to politely say this, McCollum has to go to Laura's body for a necessary task. He unwrapped the tarp and removes the flight suit that he had given her for warmth because um, her clothes have been burned off. So they're like, okay, we'll give it to Margaret. So that way, because her legs are so messed up that they need protection from, like, imagine if they're, like, bumping into things. Yeah. It's not going to feel great. I can't believe they have to leave the plane. I think if they don't leave the plane, they would have died. Yeah. Like, maybe McCollum might have survived, but the other two definitely would have died because there's no water. Yeah. Or anything like that. So he uses his pocket knife to shorten 12 inches of fabric so Margaret can wear the flight suit without tripping over herself. She's not that tall. She's probably about five two and this is probably made for a man. Mm. So they first had to climb up from the ledge where they had spent their previous two nights safely, walk past the wreckage, and because the jungle is so thick, they have to crawl on their hands and knees. <laughs> on top of it, in a few places, a wrong step would mean a fall into a rocky ravine, and others it would mean the plunge over a depth like over a cliff. So on top of it, Margaret has longer hair and it keeps getting caught. And eventually she just tells McCollum to hack it off. So he takes his pocket knife and cuts her hair into like a bob. <laughs> worst it's failed just, trip ever. It's, oh, it's the worst vacation ever. But like, she's the one who said like, cause they had to keep stopping to untangle it. And eventually she's just like, cut it off, yeah. cut it all off. And I mean, he actually did a decent job from the photos. <laughs> it didn't look like a mommy dearest haircut. No, no. I think they cleaned it up too once they got to camp, like a bit. But they were like, "Look at your hair, Margaret." Because there's pictures of them uh, at one of the camps they're at. So they stumble upon what Margaret would consider a miracle—a dry creek bed or a gully that formed a narrow path. Um, and it was really just so much easier going then because they don't have to crawl. Yeah. Well, the gully is angled sharply downwards. In some places, forcing them to climb slide or jump down the rocky slope they have to climb over boulders and tree trunks it's a trail they stop about every half an hour to rest because two of them are severely injured yeah and eventually they begin to notice trickles of icy water coming into the gully from mountain creeks and they're like yeah uh 
Margaret and Decker are both like, we're going to drink this. And Nicole's <laughs> like, what about waterborne um, germs? But they're like, nope, we're going to drink this. They're like, fuck it. Which at this point, you're like, okay, it's really cold water, so it's probably pretty clean. But, uh, you know, it's going to be a river. So eventually it gets very swift and deep, and it threatens to um, take them away. They One of the challenges is anytime they reach, like, a waterfall, at first they did a shoulder trick where McCollum would go down, and then they stand on his shoulders and kind of climb down him. But it's too deep. So they do, which I think is the funnest thing ever. They found, McCollum found a thick vine that hung along the trees, and he's testing it, and they swing over the falls. How is this the jungle style? How is this real life? I know. <laughs> You're like, this isn't real. And Margaret's like, I got this. She goes, McCollum caught her as she let go of the vine, then came Decker. They hike until early afternoon, uh, as the daily mist roll and rain rolls in. So they can't find a, ba- a spot on the bank large enough to camp. So they keep going until they can go no farther and set up at a spot that's not ideal because they're basically on this narrow wedge of the riverbank, which you don't want to do anyways. If you've watched enough Naked and Afraid as I have. <laughs> Riverbeds are great, but riverbeds, remember, animals go there. Just saying. And he puts one tarp down underneath them, one tarp over them. They have a few charms. And I love this. McCollum's in between Decker and Margaret, so he could care for both of them. Aww. So he's just like, boop, boop, boop. Oh, sorry. Podcasting's not a visual meeting. I'm, I'm just rolling, I'm really, like, rolling back and forth to take care of different people. <laughs> they know what you meant. Yeah. <laughs> um, they were also a little creeped out because earlier in the day, they noticed that they weren't alone. There was the outlined, um, outlined in the mud was a fresh human footprint. And they're like, natives. Yeah. yeah. Um, on top of that, as they're falling asleep, they hear strange barking sounds, which are also natives. Oh. <laughs> but likelihood the footprint wasn't a native. It was, um, the true Westerner discoverer of the valley, which was Richard Archibald, a young man who is, uh, had, was born extremely rich, and he visited the valley on the ground, which was kind of known at this point. Uh, he actually managed to land on a one of those uh, water planes, sea planes, on a lake. So he does basically an anthropological survey and all of that, and he's like talking about the natives, but he kind of causes some issues. And I'm, I'm the book goes more in depth into the second journey, which is really um, he has interactive the natives and this interaction could have gone very bad for the survivors or very good for the survivors. And luckily for them, it went well. So one of his men shot a native. Uh, why? Why do we do this? It, it was like mainly like, I think they had the mis- dis- a disagreement and uh, his, one of the men shot him. And so they could have run into this group of natives that had their first interactions with outsiders marked with blood. Yeah. Which isn't good because then they would also could have treated them very horribly. And Archibald actually did admit to it for a while because he published long pieces for National Geographic. But he forgot that part. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Of course. Because as much as I love National Geographic, the early history of National Geographic is very racist. Because oh. it's early anthropology, so it's very much in the the primitive, the other, like, racist, eugenics kind of thread. Yeah. And they're finally coming to terms with that, which is really nice, but yeah. Uh, so we're on day three, May 16th, and they continue their trek. As soon as Margaret begins to stand, her whole body is racked in pain. And here, because over the overnight, 
Her joints had stiffened and the burns on her skin had tightened around the muscles. So they're choking off blood flow, starving healthy flesh. Oh no. Mm-hmm. She can't like straighten up and the infections and her like injuries were beginning to turn quickly into fast killing wet gangrene. So there's two types of gangrene. There's like the slow one that you mostly think of. The wet one is like you're in a moist area. And so it's like pussy and gross and oh. it spreads quickly. And it causes sepsis, which is blood poisoning. So so she needs help. ASAP. And her fear is that her legs would have to be amputated. Because uh, it's around her, her calves. So if you amputate above the knee, she would be okay. So crazily, Margaret, she's like, okay, I got this. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. She's like, like you could just imagine this woman be like, I she, can't let these men see my pain. She just got mad. Yeah, she begins to force herself upright, walking back and forth to get her joints and, like, skin to loosen up for the continued journey. Ugh. So anyone who's had, like, a burn or, like, you have a giant scab on your skin can know this pain. Like, especially if it's on a joint, you're just like, oh, this hurts. Mm. But imagine it's the bottom half of your leg. No, thank your you. Face. No, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Um, on top of it, she looks over at Decker, who's also, like, burned and has this head injury. And she's like... In her diary, she remarks at how stoic he, he remains. And she's like, that is amazing. And McCollum also has commented that he's like, at this point, he's like, I have this responsibility for them to come out alive. But also, they are strong people. Yeah, they're super amazing people. Decker had not once complained the whole time about his, like, gaping head wound and other injuries. And um, they start calling Margaret Maggie, even though she hates it. <laughs> Like, you know, they first they do like the military stiffness, like De- like the guys are always like Decker, McCollum, and then there's like they're like Maggie. Mm-hmm. And I think they all start calling each other by their first name because after a while it's like you're stuck here with this people. You know them so well at this point. Um The will to live is amazing. Yeah. Well he's just so impressed because um she's soldiering on with gangrenous gangrenous wounds on her legs and hands, but also the burns on her left side of the face is dark, so they're starting to heal. So her face is going to be okay as long as she doesn't pick at it like I tend to do with burns. <laughs> um, he's pretty sure both of them have full-blown wet gangrene. And uh. he's like, if planes don't find us, like, they're going to be dead. And he's not even going to have the marker of, like, the plane crash for their bodies. So now the uh, stream bank was too deep for them to walk on, and the jungle foliage is giving them nothing. So they step down the eight-foot bank back into the mountain streams, to continue walking oh. in a room. Yeah. So they're just looking for a clear path, like a, a clear area. Yeah, they're looking for an easy route because uh, we'll find out later. Decker is actually a lot more injured than he looks. Oh. And he, um, like, Margaret can't walk very well. So are you going to have someone who has, like, basically her shin burned climb through the jungle? And it just takes so much longer. So... McCollum keeps going, getting further and further ahead because Maggie and Decker are injured, so they move a little slower. So she begins to panic. Quote, McCollum has gone off and left him, and he's got all the food. We're going to starve to death. And, end quote. And she plops down in the stream, and she's like, she's just kind of, I think she's just, she's hurting. She's tired. She's stressed. And McCollum, or Decker has had enough. He turns on her, and Margaret doesn't quote the full tirade at her in her diary, but, uh, she admits that he called her a piker, a quitter, and basically gets her so angry that she keeps moving. And oh. they catch up to Jacob because it's her pride. He wounds her pride. So back in Hollandia, the gremlin special's failure to return sent shockwaves through the Fiasque headquarters. 
The radio silence certainly meant a crash, and a crash meant a search, so... Finally! Yeah. This is probably about the same, like, probably that night, so the plane they heard that morning was probably looking for them, but um, they're... Their initial outset, as always, is a rescue mission. Find survivors and or find remains to return to families. They have, because it's an Air Force base, they have almost unlimited access to pilots and planes, which is really good. And because these are colleagues and friends and subordinates, they're going to have people volunteering. And more significantly, there are nine WACs on board. So there's nine women on board. The reason why I point, like it was pointed out, is because women didn't really die in World War II. Like, American women, at least. So were they more concerned because they were women? Yes. Ah. Oh, yes. Um, so most deaths of women in the, during the war came singly or in pairs. Uh, exceptions included six nurses killed by German bombings at, in um, the battle on Anzo, Anzio. So two weeks before this crash, uh, six nurses among 28 crew members were killed in a Japanese kamikaze pilot slammed into the U.S. Navy hospital ship Comfort off of the islands between Guam and Okinawa. So it's it's big news when it hits. People know when women have died in combat because, I mean, we just gave women permission to fight in combat. Yeah. That idea. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So after the missed return time, Calls were made to Allied landing strips throughout the region to see if they had um, landed somewhere else, but no, no luck. So they hauled out their inadequate maps and divided the island into sectors so pilots could have made, like, where they could have made a forced landing. Uh, even though it's raining, airborne searchers spent three days scouring those sectors, like, where they thought they could have landed. And they put Colonel Ellsmore, remember, who, dis- who discovered, discovered, quote-unquote, the valley, because in charge because he knew the valley better than anyone else in the US military. So like we're putting this person in charge, he knows the area well. That's good. Uh around eleven o'clock, May six on May sixteenth, five hours after trudging through the stream, McCollum climbed up the eight foot bank. Just like these banks are horrible and then like <laughs> everyone's in, everyone's injured. Like broken ribs are no joke. And he told them to come on up. This is the uh clearing he made. So they found they all it. Scrim- they found they did find it, yeah. So I just love Margaret when she gets to the top, just fell flat on her face into earth. She's just so tired. The boys go ahead. Well, uh, she crawled after them on her hands and knees. Cause again, remember <laughs> her, her legs are janked. Oh, yeah. Uh, she reaches them half an hour later, 50 yards from the stream. And they're, pa- the guys are panting like on the ground. She's, she's like jo- enjoying being in the sun because they hadn't seen it because of the jungle. And then they hear the roar of four powerful engines. Yes. It's a B-17 bomber high above them. They were trying to draw its attention, but the pilot of the Flying Fortress, I just love plane names in World War II, they're great, flew away without spotting them. Come so were, on. Oh, I my know. God. <laughs> uh, they ate some charms. Okay. <laughs> breakfast, lunch, and dinner and some charms. <laughs> They were um, sad because the plane missed them, but they were like, okay, they're looking for us. An hour later, another beat, like it could be the same or another one, made a pass over the clearing. McCollum's not taking any chances. He jumped to his feet. He said, get out the tarps. Because remember, they're yellow. Oh, yeah. And that'll stick out. So they untied their supplies and spread out the yellow tarp to cover um, the ground. The captain of this uh, plane, William D. Baker, was flying overhead the jungle at a high altitude. He had brought, um, he brought the chaplain along with his normal crew to so that way like in case like they do find something like they find the crash and everyone's there's no signs of survivors and whatnot so margaret's like they're gonna miss us 
back on the ground, and it seemed like they were going to have another miss again. But Captain Baker turns the bomber and circles back over the clearing. He had not given them any traditional signs that he had seen them. And even if he had seen them, he couldn't mistake them for natives because they have clothes on. Yeah. (laughs) So the native population here wears, uh, the women have basically a sarong that covers the bottom, and the guys have penis gourds. Penis gourds? Yes. What is that? It is a gourd that just covers the penis. An actual gourd? Yeah. Oh. Oh my. (laughs) Yeah. It's exactly what it sounds like. (laughs) But really, the clearest sign that it was the survivors was the yellow tarp. Less than five minutes after they had spotted the B-17, the plane returns with a favor. He races the engines. He dips his wings to basically tell them, like, hey, I see you. I got you. They had found the survivor. Um, yeah, not known to them. They're not alone down at the jungle. Oh. Hiding in the nearby jungle was a group of native men and boys from the nearby village. Among them is uh, Hemla Wankik. He, he saw them. He, like The author actually goes back and interviews people who were there at the time. Like So people who were kids at the time, he would talk to them about what like what they remember from the survivor. So he gets both, you get both sides. On my That's side. pretty cool. Yeah. So Baker a lot logged their position by latitude and longitude and had his crew drop two rafts as markers as close to the position of the clearing so other planes can find them. And Decker explains then his dry wit. He told McCollum, quote, I suppose one of us will have to marry Maggie and give this adventure a proper romantic ending, end quote. Poor Maggie. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so McCollum, they're like just joking around. He goes, quote, She'll have to put on more meat before I'm interested, end quote. Margaret then, pride injured, goes, quote, I wouldn't marry you if you were the last man in the world. I'm going to marry Decker, end quote. Which is funny because she had already turned him down for a date a weeks before their flight and wouldn't give, <laughs> would give her the last word. He just responded, the hell you are. <laughs> um, and they were wondering how long they would get. Real supplies because they were so tired of charm. Charm sounds really cool, but I don't know. It's very, it's a very depressing treat. It'd be like eating Jolly Ranchers for every meal. (laughs) Every meal. And you can't have a lot of them because you need to ration them out. Like, think about that too. You're having like one or two. Yeah. It's a horrible meal. Well, as they're sitting here and chatting, all of a sudden, Margaret realizes, hey, this, this isn't a natural clearing. Someone has painstakingly cut down trees and dragged out the shrubs. And they were sprawled in a mountainside garden of sweet potatoes or camote mixed with a smattering of wild rhubarb. And she's like, oh, crap, someone's going to come back for this. Also, we can't go back to the stream or leaving this place because they've just been spotted. So they're like, OK, we're going to hope that these people don't come here often or are nice. Which about an hour after the plane leaves, they meet their... Uh, First friends. Ooh, exciting. They hear the sounds of what sounds like yaps and barks of far away packs of dogs. <laughs> what? Yeah, so the basically it's, I think, oh. communication signals between them, the native population. And they realize that, oh, these aren't dogs. No, these aren't dogs. These are humans. <laughs> so they're trying to figure out where this is coming from. And all of a sudden, dozens of nearly da- naked black men uh, appear with hands filled with... Uh, Enzies made of, from wood and sharpened stone emerge from the jungle. Is that a weapon? Yeah, it's like a spear. They have like spheres and like um, stuff like that. So basic tools, basic, basic weapons, if you think back. Because I would say if we're going to, and I hate doing this, but just for image sake, this population is 
probably moving. Like, they don't have iron or any, like, hardened stones, but they do have, like, stones that they have sharpened into points. But they also have, like, an organized agricultural society. Yeah. For those of you who have taken anthropology or know some semblance of that. Uh, they meet these men, and they're actually, they actually kind of, the natives like them, and they have good interactions. They have one that they call Pete, and he's the main person they communicate with. And McCollum actually hopes that, like, they'll help him with medicine, like, at least have something. Yeah, it must be pretty obvious that they're injured. Yeah, uh, but for the population, you take care of the soul first. So he, like, took care of their souls. Oh. But not their physical, like, they still have gangrene. Like, what gangrene? (laughs) But it really um, helps them because them being nice to the natives and all of that. Granted, the person whose garden it was wasn't pleased. He was not a fan of them. Because they're laying in his garden. But every, like, they kind of keep him protected and, like, help them out throughout this whole journey. They don't give him food, but... What? Yeah, it's a... It's, we'll get to a point where they try to share food with them, but it's it's a very ceremonious thing to share meals. So they're not going to do it unless you trust someone. So yeah. at first, I get... You're not going to... They're just kind of watching them for a while. So back at uh, the base, Elthor's team assembles what one observer called enough equipment to stock a small country store. They fill cargo... Uh, Car repair shoots to crates filled with the essentials of 10-in-1 food rations, blankets, tents, first aid kits, two-way radios, batteries, and shoes. Shoes are important always in war. And having spotted uh, what looked like a whack on the ground, they included the less conventional jungle survival survival necessities, including lipstick and bobby pins. Why? Because men are packing this. <laughs> They're like, this is what Margaret needs. Oh, don't worry. Later on, uh, because the women at... Uh, on the base, their cycles are so messed up. Uh, they, uh, they're like, McCollum's like, I don't know. Do you know when your next cycle's going to be? And she's like, I don't know. I haven't had it in a while. So they're like, okay, send some code, like, send some sanitary products. And they send so much. <laughs> they have no idea. They have no idea. And it's so funny. They send like probably enough for like 20 women for like <laughs> a year. Like it's so many. And they're just like, and it's like, like every couple of drops, like every drop has like, five boxes and you're just like do you think she's dying like it's it's ridiculous uh then comes to the serious more serious problem they have no idea how to reach the survivors or get them back because if there had been a way to land a plane in shangri-la and take off again elsewhere would have already been there done that and the dutch and australian authorities who had been in contact because they remember they'd reached out they're like we'll help with um, an overland track but you can't, they're like, okay, if we don't have native bears to carry things, because, yes, that's still a thing. Basically, they would hire native populations to carry things for them. Oh. It, it, it was a traditional way of doing things. And you, I know in certain areas, just because of the difficulty of bringing in, like, trucks and all that, it still happens, or, like, you hire them. Um, but the other problem is they don't know how many um, hostile trial tribes or Japanese soldiers are hiding in the jungles between them and the they're survivors, so that's not a great idea. Helicopters? Yeah, no, remember, the altitudes. Yep. And they're like, okay, what about landing a seaplane on the Bailin River? Which, they didn't know at this point that someone's already done that, and that's how a lot of people get in now. Uh, every idea is having a logistical problem, so they're mainly trying to get them help on the ground first. They're like, okay, let's drop some paratroopers, soldiers and medics, you know, who wouldn't mind being outnumbered by presumably cannibalistic natives. Yeah, we'll figure out how to get everyone out later. (laughs) But infantry-trained paratroopers were in the thick of the fight, as far as they know, and there's no none committed near Hollandia. Uh, So, 
And there's really no set uh, protocol for getting them out, which is what happens. They're just winging it. Yeah. Well, one of the officers in Hollandia, John Babcock, learns that his former student was based uh, in Hollandia, C. Earl Walter Jr. He remembered that he had been expelled for from school as a troublemaker, and second, that he was now an infantry-trained paratrooper frustrated about being stuck in Hollandia. So, <laughs> the reason why he's stuck there is his dad is this, like, crazy awesome dude who's fighting in the Philippines. He, like, he lived in the Philippines before the Japanese had taken it over, and he's, like, leading the uh, guerrilla warfare. So, he's got some pull with the U.S. Army. <laughs> and his son is now in Hollandia, away from fighting. What they, what they do know about sending, like, sending these guys in is there's about 60,000 or so natives on the main valley floor, tens of thousands in the uh, surrounding areas who have organized themselves into small fenced villages or hamlets. Most had 30 to 50 people living communally. Um, larger villages might have several times that number. That They do know that there are hostilities between groups, but they have no reason to know why. They've always been en- enemies, so they will remain en- enemies. And the they did see a cluster of huts as the gremlin special flew by the, uh, before the crash and it was the village of the natives called Uwamba. The villagers all of the Yali tribe were busy with their chores. As soon as they heard the plane they ducked for cover which is why they didn't see any. Oh. Yes. So when the the Uwambe people come to see them Pete and all of them remember they had heard a Ulak legend that anticipated the return of spirits whose rope to the valley floor had been cut. The legend describes these creatures from the Anu, perfectly light skin, light long hair, light eyes, arms covered. Anu made sense too. In the absence of the rope, the sky spirits had found another way to the valley. So they think white devils. That, not that they're white devils, but they're like white spirits, god things. Yeah. So a native Yarlock uh, went up to see, and his nephew later explained, "Quote: Something cataclysmic was happening. He didn't want to create panic or be blamed. These were spirits. The legend was." said long-haired people would come down from the sky. They were horrified. This could be the end time. It was something they had been talking about and hearing about for generations, unquote. So... They were just as scared of us. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, the population, you don't want to be the bearer of bad news because they do kill the messenger. They blame the messenger in the calendar. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And they did consume the flesh of their enemies, so the cannibalistic nature that they had heard about was it wrong? <laughs> so they, the native population actually had every reason to consider it wise to strike at them first, but they didn't have any weapons. And so the column told them, we can, we just have to be friendly, smile, and pray it work. And they tried to offer them some charms. <laughs> They're charms. And I know. They're about... McCollum's count had them at about 40 adult males. And she said over their shoulders... Margaret said over their shoulders they carried wicked-looking stone axes. So that's the Enze. Uh, and at least one carried a long spear. She felt her hands shaking, holding out the charms. And she felt like they just kept coming. People kept coming, kept coming, kept coming. <laughs> and a lot, at last, um, an older man steps forward. He was wire and alert, naked except for a necklace with a narrow piece of shell strung above his sternum. His penis cord was more than a foot long, pointed towards the sky. And they took that to be the chief. They he beckons them towards the log bridge, and they really like struggling to move. And he's like, "Come on, come on!" <laughs> and I was like, "I think we better go and humor them." But Margaret really can't move; she can barely stand, and she's pretty sure she would fall off the log. 
Um, she was worried that the, she would be asked to deliver herself to men that she thought were savages. Oh, boy. Or, or worse, cannibals. The man that they thought was the chief uh, and called Pete was Wimbaku Windaki, who is a leader, not a chief, in Uambu. He uh, he acted kindly towards the creatures he thought were sky spirits because he learned the Uwaki, Uwake legend. I'm apologizing for my pronunciation. I'm doing my best. <laughs> they won't know. Yeah. Wimbaku thought that something good would come from the spirit's return, even though it meant the end of an era. He hoped that it would be a new era better for his people. As they go back and forth doing greetings, the natives start a fire um, and begin to cook sweet potatoes, which the natives called hippery. McCollum bent down and pulled up a plant that he thought looked like rhubarb. He wiped off the dirt, bit the stalk, and felt smoke shooting from his ears, and then spits it out, which makes the natives laugh. All except for one farmer. So that got the farmer and like his daughter really don't like them. But Pete, because he's one of the leaders and a lot of the people see them as good things. So the natives leave, pack up, take all their food. Because I think they realized that they were injured and they weren't going to like, they couldn't really communicate. Yeah. But Margaret wakes up in the middle of the night, sensing someone hovering over her. And before she could scream, she recognized it was Pete. He was worried about them. And he come back to make, to see how they were. And he was hovering over him like a mother hen. So... They realize that they have, um, Pete just basically comes and checks on them every night to make sure they're okay and that, like, others aren't bothering them. Yeah. I'm sorry, this is a very long story. (laughs) (laughs) So, back in Hollandia, um, we have John Babcock meeting with his student, Walter, and they're talking, Walter's been training Filipino, uh, paratroopers to go, like, they're basically prepared to go beyond, behind the enemy lines, and if they're Filipino, you blend in a little better in this area. Uh, so they realized Walter was like, Oh wait, we can go, we can do this. We can go into the jungle. We have this experience. We're paratroopers. We're the only paratroopers around. <laughs> so he told, after he talks about crack, they kind of figure out, uh, he goes and tells man, we'll be jumping into unknown areas. So you need your wit and compasses about you. We need two medics to be dropped as close as possible to the survivors in the thick jungle. And this horror, like it's a horrible area to drop people. And mind you, I believe they're still using circular parachute. Right. Which isn't great for steering. Oh, these guys so, are super ballsy. That's like any paratroopers before like in like World War One, World War Two is super ballsy because so the ones we see now, you can kind of, you know how you see them like steering them? Yeah. You couldn't really steer them. Because <laughs> the circle, like it kind of, you kind of just drop it to the pleasure of the wind. So uh, you have two medics go down. And then Walter and eight other volunteers would drop down um, some 20 to 30 air miles away. They would establish a base camp with the goal of leading the medics and the survivors from the crash site down into the valley. There is no possibility that the natives will be kind to them and they'll be outnumbered by hundreds. Even if um, they get to the, okay, so say they, everything goes perfect, they land and everything. They still have to hike 150 miles either north or to the south coast of uh, New Guinea with the crash survivors who might be hurt and unable to walk on their own. So they, they see them and then decide to drop these guys 150 miles away? No, that's like if their plan is to, like, hike out. Uh, like, if they hike out, they're going to have to hike about, like... Got it. Like, an extensive distance with injured people. Oh, okay. And um, that... So, the paratroopers are all on board. They're like, yes, we're bored, let's go. <laughs> Everyone volunteers. Back, back with the group on the ground. They spot the first plane at nine in the morning, a C-47, and they realize what this looks like from the native's perspective for the first time. They begin dropping uh, a crate. The guys go in to get retrieve the, the box, and she begins taking notes of where subsequent shoots and boxes landed. So 
The men take a while to drag the crate out. They get something more valuable than food, a portable FM radio, which can be used to transmit and receive messages. It's a box of tampons. <laughs> I don't think tampons were a thing. So like those weird, these look like weird belt things. Yes. Uh, so they lugged a 35-pound two-way radio the size of a small suitcase back. And it receives, um, it can be carried on the back of a soldier and receives the nickname Walkie Talkie. So fun fact, World War II, the start of Walkie Talkies. <laughs> so they get back and um, McCollum uh, calls over the radio. This is Lieutenant McCollum. Give me a call. Give me a call. Do you read me over? And the answer comes back swiftly. This is 313, which is basically the serial numbers of the plane. And so they go back and forth. 313 calling five. Uh, 952. So they get a perfect connection and they begin to like go back and forth and tell, give them updates on how they are. Now that they get, they get all the, um, other boxes in and Colin's like, okay, we got to deal with this wet gangrene problem because it's gross and it's going to kill everyone. Yeah. Well, except for McCollum because he doesn't have it, but everyone else. And if you're a little squeezy, skip, skip ahead. <laughs> so Margaret rolls up her pants to explode the wide rings of burns around their calves. Unattended for four days, they oozed pus and reeked of dying flesh. Oh, God. The cuts and burns on both her feet turned gangrenous and as as had part of her hand. The guys looked at her and were alarmed. And she begins to freak out that she's going to lose her legs. So, um, and she's like, if I let down my guard, I might spiral into a panic. So she lets McCollum uh, apply ointment that they found in the jungle kits. And he wraps her wound. Then they turn to Decker. The gap on, their for- on his forehead is uh, deep and oozing. While, um... Boimaku, or Pete's breath might have saved his soul. It did nothing to help his wound. <laughs> and they're like, we don't want to touch it unless we have like proper tools and sterile equipment because it's going to make it worse. And his appeared broken elbow, they're like, yeah, we're not going to touch that either because we're going to fuck it up more. But they remembered in previous days, Decker had mentioned discomfort caused by his pants sticking to his backside. So they're like, oh, it might be burn but there's no um the fabric's not torn or scorched so they like it couldn't be that bad so McCollum's like okay drop your pants lie face down on the ground and it's bad oh his his like his back is severely burned it just burned through the fabric so I don't know how this man was walking or doing anything and I'm just impressed so they do the same thing they kind of put they bandage up and everything and they're hoping that medics get through them to them soon so the the paratroopers are flying over. It's Saturday, May 19th, so we're six-ish days out. Six and- horrible days in. Yeah. At least Margaret got to meet the natives. I know. She got to meet the natives, finally. They're, like, the first army people who did. So he has his two medics, Rami Ramirez and Doc Lutalo, um, and they're passing over the intended drop zone, which looks horrible. Like, it's not great. And they had already, like, observed it two days earlier. So because of the unpredictable mountain winds, he's dropped five wind dummies, which seems excessive. <laughs> and makes, like, you know, they're just sitting there like, I agree to this, but this is an excessive amount of dummies. <laughs> and these dummies are weighted bundles used to assess turbulence. And um, Walter said, quote, the reason I dropped five is because every one of them changed direction. So I had no idea, basically, end quote, which way, which way the winds would blow the medics. And the guys actually, they're like, he's like, okay, we have to just do it. So they drop them. Uh, Ramirez twists his ankle, like, cause he lands on a rock and, but he's okay. And as soon as they land, they're surrounded by natives and they're like, the guys have guns, but the natives are like, oh no, we'll take you to, we'll take you to them. Cause it's the same tribe. Yeah. Luckily. So, yeah. 
So the boys take, uh, it takes them several hours trekking over through around ferns, vines, trees, and all that. They reach the clearing, and the survivors are so happy to see them. Immediately starting with Decker, they begin to do, like, medical stuff, because they also drop medical supplies. So they grab the medical supplies that they found. The medics poured peroxide and act- antibacterial powder called sulfamidide on the wound and onto the gangrenous burns on his butt. So his, he has a gangrenous butt. Ugh. <laughs> sounds so horrible. I bet it's horrible. Uh, you can't sit, you, like, and basically for a long period of time, he's just laying on his stomach because he can't do anything else. The gash on his head is too wide to stitch, but Doc Butello, who took uh, lead on the medical matters, gently massaged the skin around the wound, pushing through the two sides closer so they could eventually be knit together as Rami worked on his uh, broken elbow. He fashioned a split from tree bark and held it against his arm as he wrapped bandages, immobilizing it. They really don't want to, again, set it because without x-rays, they're like, we could set it completely wrong and then you can't use your arm. And he can, he could use his arm later on, so. I don't know how he's alive. I mean, how were any of them except for McCollum alive <laughs> at this point? Then they took their attention to Margaret and spent the two ne- next two hours working on her legs. So basically, every they would change the, the bandages, but every time McCollum would have to change the bandages before this, he'd have to rip them off. <gasps> like, the pus. So they have been like, he would put ointment on them, they would pus, they'd have to change the bandages. So for both of them, they'd have to like rip off the bandages every time. But if you think about it, it's kind of better because it's airing it out and it's not letting that illness stay in, but it's so gross when you think about it. Yeah. Spend two hours basically ripping off bandages and putting new bandages on in a better method because they know what they're doing. But I think really them taking care of the the wounds, like at least trying to save them somewhat because it wasn't letting the gangrene form, like stay formed. Does that make sense? Yes. It's good they dropped medics off first. Yeah. So Walter and his men then jump in the northwest part of the valley, an area known to the natives as Wushi. Um, so get ready for some uncomfortableness. <laughs> More? Oh, this this part's just really uncomfortable. <laughs> so then they're immediately surrounded by natives, and Walter convinces his men not to shoot, but because they have never seen clothing before, they begin to just, like, they say rubbing them, but they're just <laughs> touching their clothes all over. <laughs> and it was like, oh, okay, like, okay, okay. And that must have been really scary. It was really scary because they, like, they, they, the Americans thought it was sexual. What? They, they thought the natives believed they were women. And Walter's trying to communicate that they're male. And he goes, nope, they keep rubbing. <laughs> and at a point, Walter described it as making love. <laughs> so Walter's like, okay, we're going to go unconventional. So he just strips to show that he could wear a gourd himself. So the guys all strip. So weird. And this ha- like, yeah. And then finally, they're just getting to know each other. Well, the natives then thought that they're like, this is odd. Cause they're like, they knew they were men and they were just confused by the clothing. So then more people come to see, cause they're like, there's some naked dude. <laughs> and, the, oh, it's, and finally, um, you know, they put their clothes back on and they were just, all the guys are so edgy and they, they're putting together a camp. And they just fire some shots into the sky. She's like, leave us alone. Just for fun. <laughs> well, mainly just to scare them. Because they're like, please stop. Wow. Stop touching us. And I mean, it, if it's gone on for hours, <laughs> stop touching me. Unconsensual p- petting, please, no. So the next day, May 22nd, uh, Walter has their guys fuel up on a breakfast of ham, eggs, biscuits, marmalade, and washed it down with hot chocolate. What? you know. I, World War II must have made everybody, like, because they had, 
they would always put like chocolate bars and stuff in there and like have them have hot chocolate because it's actually really substantive if you're doing actual old school hot chocolate. Mm. But I don't think that many people had had chocolate before and then so much chocolate. So they, him and five men begin to like trek to the uh, survivor's uh, site. Um, that left his first sergeant in charge of base camp along with two sergeants to enlist a group of the Danny men as carriers and native guides. So they're like, okay, you guys bring up the supplies. We'll get there first to make sure they're okay. So it takes them a couple days to get there. And the supply plane radios down. They'll get like, they're going to get to you soon. And then Margaret hears the yapping sound. And as soon as they get like a little bit sooner, they hear shoo-shoo, my baby, shoo-shoo, goodbye, my baby, don't you cry no more, your big tall papa's off to the seven seas, because Walter is singing. He's hiking through the jungle singing. (laughs) So now the camp has expanded to ten men, one woman. They begin to set up basically a camp so they can, you know, wait there until the survivors are healthy enough to go back. Um, And try to figure out how to get out of there. Yes. So on May 27th, so we started this on the 13th, nearly two weeks after the crash. Walter woke at seven in the morning and heads out to the wreck because they're going to, they dropped, um, grave markers for the, for the, those who passed. And I love this. They did, um, crosses for Christians. They had a couple, uh, stars of David's for those who were Jewish. Huh. I'm like, huh. But they couldn't find, like, they, they had to set out like a couple days and they couldn't find the, their way back up to the crash, which just shows you how confusing, confusing this jungle is. So McCollum had to lead the men back up, and he knew they were close when they spotted wispy strands of light brown hair in the vines and the shrubs. Ew. Shrubs. It's Margaret's hair. Ugh. <laughs> That's how caught it got. Well, now that they knew that the survivors were okay, they let let it slip back to the U.S. that, hey, there's something amazing happening in this jungle. And several reporters take the bait, and they begin to, like, just every time they're doing the supply drop every day, there's reporters there asking them questions, talking to the survivors and all that. So Friday, June 15, 33 days after the crash, Doc Butel gives Margaret and Decker a thorough going over to make sure their wounds have sufficiently healed. They are fit enough to travel. So that means Margaret's not losing her legs and Decker is not losing against Zach. <laughs> it's time to go. Yeah. So while they needed more medical treatment, they were out of immediate danger and could hike with help to the Big Valley. Everyone is so stir crazy. They're like, let's go. <laughs> So he delayed their departure till noon, though, so the supply train plane could drop off extra flares and spare walkie-talkies in case of provo- uh, problems happened en route to the camp. So remember I said they dropped a lot of Kotex yes. to them? So the guys have packed up their backpack, and um, McCollum noticed that there's unused boxes of Kotex that have been dropped from our, like, an excessive <laughs> amount. <laughs> like a box would have been fine. <laughs> but... He goes, Maggie, are you going to use this? And she's like, uh, no. So he opened up the, the boxes and he handed out sanitary napkins for the men and to tuck under the shoulder strap of the uh, heavy backpacks. And, um, you know, he said later, man, those things, those are good for that sort of thing. So they were putting padding on the shoulders <laughs> with pads. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, so they didn't realize because of their relationship with the native that uh, Pete, as they like to call him, had given them a sort of gift. They bestowed a MAGA, which is a declaration of safe packet passage along the attendant route. So they basically told natives all up and down, like, let them pass. These oh. are sky spirits. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Um, so after they left, the visitors broke up the camp, and uh, the natives 
gathered everything that was left behind and put it into the cave. Put it into a cave because quote, <laughs> nobody knew what the food was. The people were afraid of it, so they put it in one place and it became sacred object. Pigs were killed and their blood was sprinkled on it in a purification ceremony. End quote. It's like they staged the place. Yeah. <laughs> they planted a, ba- a bamboo-like tree near the entrance to market as a place of magic. I just love that because they're like, we don't know what this is, so it must be sacred. Yeah. So uh, they hike for that whole day. Um, and again, Margaret is impressing everyone. They're like, she's really hurting, but she's still going. On day uh, three of their day on the trail, June 17th, Walter was so impressed. She goes, she could be a first-rate infantry infantry soldier. Which is, at that point, really a high compliment. So they still, they finally make it into the valley. And it is five weeks since they left Hollandia. They finally get the first hand look of, at Shangri-La. Like, oh, how wow. disappointing is that? Yeah. Shangri-La is not super sweet. <laughs> no. Let's not go back. Can go there. And it's a little easier. So this supply plane radioed them to let them know they had a filmmaker who planned to make a documentary about Life, death, the natives, and the rescue effort. They, uh, <laughs> as he's preparing to jump, Walter commented to the plane, has this guy ever made a jump before? He hasn't. And, uh, he learned that a, a fellow first recon paratrooper back in Hollandia had given him a, a half hour verbal basics in avoiding certain deaths. Okay. And Walter's response was, for Christ's sake, tie a rope to his ripcord, cause at least if the guy freezes in midair, the chute would open, and he wouldn't <laughs> certainly die. <laughs> he, did not do well in the fall, and the, he manages to land spread eagle on his back in a clump of tall briar bushes some distance from base camp. And mind you, it took they had to do several loops of the plane because he was like freaking out. They're like, "Is he dead or wounded?" And they reach him, and Sergeant Pavanio uh, calls to Walter, "Captain, sir, this man is drunk." <laughs> and my favorite phrase, "Drunker than a hoot owl," was told about. That's a new one. Yeah. So this is Alexander Can, a 42-year-old adventurer who basically found his way here through, he's a scam artist, and I suggest reading the book because that guy's story is insane, but just for brevity's sake. He was in Australia when he heard about this, and he's like, I'll go over there and make a movie about it. So then uh, they're back at the, at Hollandia, they're trying to figure out how to get them out. And Ellsworth goes to Henry E. Palmer to figure out what kind of planes you can get there. Well, Palmer comes up with this idea. They were talking about, like, a Sentinel aircraft, which is meant to land on tightly designed rough trains. And he goes, I got a better idea, and it won't cost any fuel. So he goes into the headquarters, and he's like, okay, let's use glider planes. So That's glider that makes sense. Yeah. So glider planes get towed along behind an aircraft, and when they're in the air, they can be attached. And you can release them, and they go down, and you can pick them back up. So they have to... They need a snatch pilot, and they need someone to pilot the glider. Oh, wait a minute. They're going to drop a glider, (laughs) and then they're going to pick this glider up? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Okay. I know. Sounds crazy. So he uh, gets, they get Major William Samuels, who's an experienced uh, glider pilot, like snatch pilot and all of that. And um, Palmer is like, I'll fly the glider. I'll pilot the glider. So. And remember, they're on an air base, so there's plenty of pilots around. So Samuel, uh, would, he named his, uh, plane Louise. He, he called, renamed it Leaking Louise because it had a tendency to spray engine oil all over its wings. So it sounds great. <laughs> um, and Palmer eventually dubbed his Waco glider 
fanless faggot. What? Not a slur, not a slur, but for its missing motor and its resemblance to a bundle of sticks. Okay. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. <laughs> and if I use that in reference to it now, that is just the name of the place. <laughs> so Ellsmore would supervise the mission from the cockpit of his own B-52 bomber, which he had uh, named after his 17-year-old son, Ray, Ray Jr., and he would have on there uh, enough reporters for a media circus. So, so why? Because it, they have built this all up. They're like, uh, like it's now like in the news constantly. Yeah. Like, what are they doing? What's happening with this? How are the survivors? So they had a couple weeks of training because, you know, it's an art to picking up a glider and you have to make sure everyone like, and it's not an easy area to do it. So they wanted to practice it on at first an easy area, then move to harder areas. And eventually, like, we just got to do this. Yeah, this plan, this plan is crazy. Yeah. So um, Walter and the colonel are going back and forth. And he, uh, Ellsmore, was like, okay, the first trip should be Walter, Mac, uh, Maggie, and Decker. So all the survivors and Walter, like, the head of the rescue mission. And Walter's like, no, I'm going to be the last one out with my men. So we're going to put some other people with them, which is a real change to his character because he wanted that glory. But now he's like, no, I just want these people to get out safe. That's the whole point. So they drop the fanless faggot comes on board to Shangri-La, gliding at the end of a tow cable. Um, and like Ellsmore is updating the people on the ground, like how it's going and that. And the glider lands uh, like really well, doesn't like crash or anything. They, <laughs> that's a plus. That's a plus. <laughs> they put out um, nylon, like they they like use red parachute. Um, that outlined the makeshift landing strip and they have to like turn it around and they only have half an hour turnaround because the plane that's going to pick them up only has so much fuel and Maggie is so upset to leave. She can't say bye to people. Who cares? (laughs) (laughs) Well, at this point, they've now been in the base camp for another couple of weeks. So they've made friends with like that they have been doing training and all that. Also, None of the survivors have packed. <laughs> They're packing. The natives are doing a crying ceremony for them. Oh boy. And then at 9:47 a.m., they're in the they're in the glider. The steel hook catches the loop. Samuel slams the throttles forward to gain power as he pulled back on the control to gain altitude. Uh inside the glider, the passenger crew felt a neck snapping jolt and it begins to take off. They drag the glider um, to a dangerous 105 miles per hour. This is making it flying barely above the sea speed, which the C-47 was doomed to stall and making everything fa- like fatal. So, on top of that, because, you know, can't get any worse, the fanless faggot caught one of the parachutes laid down on the center field. So, it's underneath the air belly and it's making more drag. So- Can you imagine coming this far and then dying in the rescue mission? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, it gets better. <sighs> So inside, the five passengers are just like, oh, yay, like the, the tow rope didn't break. And then they heard this, uh, persistent slap, slap, slap noise from underneath the glider, a.k.a. the parachute. Uh, and whipping against the glider's belly, the chute tore open the canvas-covered floor, adding added damage caused by sweeping through tree branches. They're strapped into their seats, and they look back, and there's just, like, open floor. Oh, my God. So the chute keeps whacking at it, and it's canvas, so it keeps shredding. Margaret is like, oh, crap. <laughs> McCall, again, our hero, swallows everything that has happened to him, unbuckles his seat, gets to his knees, he crawls towards the tail of the glider, fighting the wind, hanging on to keeping from plumbing to his death, he reaches through the hole and grabs a handful of the parachute cup. He pulls it inside, grabs, like, 
basically pulls the shoot in and the rest of the trip, 90 minute trip was uneventful. And you know, what the fuck? I know. Uneventful <laughs> minus the fact they don't have a, Ugh. so as soon as they get back, they are met with a pack of general VIP reporters waiting for them doing it. And it took them seven weeks since they took off. And you can see pictures of the crews posing. They all survived. Everyone else got out. They took another glider back and, uh, you know, they all survived the war. The war ends in a few, like, in August. So, and it's just, like, this crazy story you've never heard about. No, I've never. I mean, this could be a movie and should be. And I will say the best part, which I just for time's sake, I didn't include. They, the survivors, he goes back and interviews them and, like, follows them through the rest of their lives. Oh, really? And they met up. The guys would meet up and they, like, had this unofficial club and, insane like walters and mccollum and decker would still meet up even after maggie passed it's crazy that was a very intense story like i bit my nails to the point where they're gone i'm serious yeah it's it's intense but you don't hear about it a lot and no nazis no nazis (laughs) Uh, thank you for coming on Check out the Murderific True Crime Podcast, hosted by Bernadette from the state of Maine. Topics will include some seriously true scary stories about serial killers, mass murderers, familicides, the missing, and unsolved cases. Go to www.murderific.com to start listening now or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Until then, we will be executing podcasts one crime at a time. I'm Heather. And I'm Rochelle. And And we're we're the hosts of Nature vs. Narcissism, a true crime podcast mixed with some dark humor. Sometimes we have alcohol. Sometimes we have guests. Sacramento, California. Canton, Michigan. Green River, Honolulu, Hawaii. Omaha, Nebraska. Niagara, North Dakota. Gloucester, United Kingdom. Dakota County, Wyoming. Epizoyacon, Hidalgo. Mexico, Flint, Michigan, Boston, Massachusetts, Phoenix, Arizona, Woodruff, South Carolina, Edmonton, New York, Hudson Valley, New York. In season two, we will examine notorious killers in cities across the globe from A to Z. We'll delve into their criminal history as well as their upbringing to try to determine why these killers commit these violent acts. Was it nature? Was it nurture? Or was was it it plain old narcissism? Find us on your favorite podcast streaming service or visit murder.ly. Mysticity. We're available on all podcatchers. Remember to rate, review, subscribe to help spread the word or just force other people to listen to it. Our Facebook and Twitter are at Domestic Podcasts and our Instagram is at The Cult of Domesticity. We also have podcast merch at Threadless. Uh, as well, if you want to support us financially or show some appreciation, we have a PayPal tip jar and a Patreon, which has some pretty great perks. Any topic suggestions, feel free to email us at domesticpodcasts at gmail.com. Remember to stay domestic and cult-free. <laughs>